We are in Exodus chapter 32, 33, and 34. We obviously won't be able to go through that line by line, uh, but I believe God has word for us uh, today together and individually. So let's pray before we get into this and you can begin to open your Bibles. Father, I pray that you would speak to us um, in very, very real ways, in very precise ways. God, this ancient story uh, speaks as much to modern times as it did to those times. So I pray that you'd speak to us. I pray that we wouldn't look at the word of God at a distance, but that it would uh, come home to us and it would land right up in our lives. And God would expose us in ways that are healing and in ways that are freeing. So God, do the work that only you can do. God, we surrender to say that what we need at this moment is not a great talk or great songs, but we need God. So we ask you for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I'm gonna ask you to participate with me in an exercise of imagination, which means you don't need to raise your hands and you don't even have to verbalize anything. But you do have to engage with me. So here's the engagement exercise. What comes to your mind when you hear the word detoxification? Some people are laughing. So detoxification or detox. So when you look up, like right now, if I go on my Google app and I hit the voice, detoxification. the definition of detoxification the process of removing toxic substances or right. that wasn't my intention i'll read it for you so <laughs> detoxification the process of removing toxic substances or qualities another part of the definition is a medical treatment of an alcoholic or a drug addict involving abstention from drink or drugs until the bloodstream is free of toxins. But then the next link says full body detox, nine ways to rejuvenate your body. So it could have to do with the rejuvenation of the body to detox from alcohol that your body has become at some level dependent upon or heroin or meth. Or it could be that you're just addicted to potato chips, right? And you need to like fill up a water bottle multiple times a day with lemon and cayenne pepper and different oils that'll just run through your body and detoxify your body. There's nine ways in the first link to detoxify your body. But the bottom line is this. <clears throat> there are toxins, toxic substances inside your body that need removal. Well, in a very real way, the journey God has the Israelites on through the book of Exodus is a process of detoxification. He's moving the nation of Israel out of a toxic environment in which they were being oppressed. But through the process, he's saying to the nation of Israel, that which was and is toxic in Egypt is actually toxic in you. It's toxic in you as a people collectively, which means it's toxic in you as individuals. And again today, 
God is leading them to the first place of what detoxification would be, which is recognition that you have toxicity within you. Now, like any great detoxification unit, the way in which you detox your body is you begin to practice different things. You come to a recognition, there are toxins in my body, and so you may go to a rehab center in which you're in detox, in which you develop new practices. One is don't continue to put toxins in your body. But then you develop new practices, whether it be detoxification from drugs or detoxification from eating poorly or living poorly, the reality is it comes about through new practices. So God has led the nation of Israel out of a toxic environment, helped them identify toxins within themselves and begins to develop in them new practices. This is why Moses has gone up on a mountain at this point prior to chapter 32, to receive a law, an instruction for how they will live to both detoxify themselves from idolatry. One of the most famous parts of the law that's this process, if you will, of detoxification is to say, there is one God, the Lord your God, and there is no other. You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone, worship no other, the first of the... Ten Commandments. So he right now is establishing this law in which they would live in such a way to rid themselves of toxins and be filled with God to be God's people. So he's up on a mountain. He's up there too long and the people get impatient. Verse 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. So if you've ever been around little kids, especially if you're a mother or a father, and there's these moments where they're like, I'm hungry. And you're like, wait, we're going to eat in 35 minutes. And then you decide to walk back to your room and you walk back out. And they're like, it's taking forever. And now they have applesauce and fruit snacks and chips and Cheez-Its and they're shoving in their face. And they're like, you were taking forever. That's what's happening. These people are getting impatient. And they're like, listen, and here's the thing. This is where we really got to get human and real here. Because the tendency right now to see them begin to take off their jewelry, give it to this man, Aaron, who liquefies all of this jewelry and then he makes a golden calf, chisels a golden calf. Our tendency is to go, these people are crazy. Like they're ancient idolaters, they're mystical, they're making a golden calf, this is crazy. So let me just stop and humanize this just for a minute. Remember that these people have been let out of the only land they've known, right? There was none of these Israelites who knew another place other than Egypt, for the most part. They've been let out of a land that they knew. Yes, they were under oppression. They've seen all of these dramatic things. Now they've been being led into the wilderness. They're tired. They're confused. Yes, they've seen dramatic, dramatic things where God has shown himself as God and that those things that, is, that Egypt said were gods aren't in fact gods at all. They've seen all this extraordinary stuff, but they're confused, they're scared, they're worried, and now there really is a period of time where they're looking to their leader and their leader is not there. 
So here's what they do when they're uncomfortable, when they're tired, they're anxious, many of them are depressed, they're depleted, they turn back to what they know. This is what people in Egypt do. They fashion idols to guide them and then they celebrate around them. It's a very normal cultural practice. So now the masses come to this man, Aaron, who witnessed all the works of God with his own eyes. He's kind of Moses' right-hand man. And they're like, Aaron, Moses has been gone forever. We need a God. And Aaron doesn't go, you have a God. Like, let's fall to our face and pray to the one true God. They're like, no, we need a God. Like, fashion us a God. And he goes, okay. The madness of the masses sweeps all of the people of Israel up to now go, we need to fashion a golden idol. Now, don't mistake this really quick. They don't worship the idol. They wanted a representation of a God, right? But God has told them not to do this. Aaron gets swept up in the movement of the masses. And let me just say this really quickly. So do you. So do I. Sin is deceitful and much of sin is spoken to us through what we think are cultural norms. This is why the author of Hebrews says we have to orient ourselves to the truth of God and his word and be around people who believe this because sin is, here's the word that's used in the book of Hebrews, deceitful. Now allow me for just a moment to ask you a question. Do you like being deceived? Right? If someone comes up to you and is seeking to deceive you and you find out about it, are you happy? No, we hate that. And yet sin is deceitful. It promises us things it can't deliver upon. I like saying this, that sin overpromises and underdelivers. And I like saying that because then I can stop and go, it doesn't just overdeliver underdeliver sin overpromises and counterdelivers it promises to you life and stability and comfort and convenience but in fact it brings about darkness and death this is what sin ultimately is doing and does so at this moment i want you to see something we get moved by the masses just as these people did they resorted to that which was comfortable so let me ask you when you're in a moment and you feel depleted, you feel confused, you feel like the future that's set in front of you is not clear, it's murky, it's cloudy, maybe even it's dark. You feel anxious and you're looking for footing, some place to be stable and secure. I'm asking you very realistically, very functionally, like where do you actually go in moments like that? The vast majority of humanity goes to what's comfortable. What I want you to see is what's comfortable oftentimes is sin. The word that would be used is it's idolatry. If you want to understand sin in the Bible, sin is idolatry and idolatry is sin. All of sin is idolatry and all of idolatry is sin. Now, I know we don't typically use the word idolatry in normal human cultural discourse. But idolatry at a very 
easy level. I'm going to give you a simple definition. There's a man named David Pallison who's recently deceased, but he did a lot of counseling in his day and came from a perspective of the Bible. And he would say this, that idolatry at its simplest level is whatever has functional control of your life at any given moment. That's worth writing down, right? And that's not even arrogant because I didn't say it, right? He did. Idolatry is whatever has functional control of your life at any given moment. So at the moments when my kids are driving me insane and I want to pull out my hair because dinner's supposed to be in 35 minutes, but they want to eat now, and everything within me, anger just begins to rise up within me, and all I want is the comfort of my bedroom with no children, right? At that moment, the reason I get angry is what has functional control of my life is the aspiration for comfort. Now, I want to make it that simple so that we don't look at What's happening in Exodus 32 of them going after and saying, fashion for us a golden calf, and we go, those people are crazy. I'd never do that. You do it every single day. We do it every single day. Idolatry is whatever has functional control of our life at any given moment, and idolatry means the places you're going to receive your footings, your security, other than God. So the moments when I have sleepless nights and I can't sleep and worry comes upon me for multiple reasons because of the things I'm thinking about and for the reality that I don't feel good when I don't sleep. And I begin to put music bud earbuds in to listen to music and I have other moments where I begin to walk around and all of a sudden there is a very real, and don't think this is crazy, but there's a very real moment of when the psalmist says, some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. There are people in this room right now that when you look at the insecurity of the world above, you're just like, just boost our military budget. It's the person who gets in the White House next. Others of you are like, it's music at night. Others of you are like, let me just drown myself out in Netflix. Others are like, if we can just change the political landscape or the economic landscape, or if I could just get that job, or others of us just go, if I can just drown it out with alcohol or with drugs at these moments, or I just need that relationship. I just need to call that girl or that guy. Those moments of where you're seeking, I just got to get comfortable is a moment where you're lacking an understanding that you're made by and for God. All of your cravings for comfort, security, safety, identity, purpose, ultimately seeking after life that's directed anywhere other than the God who spoke the world into existence, the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, the God in whom all things are holding together, the God in whom is the builder of all things. Anything like that, when you seek solace, in refuge, in a created thing rather than the creator, that's sin and it has disastrous consequences. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Romans 1 verse 25. This is a New Testament passage speaking to the exact reality that's happening in Exodus 32. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. How did they exchange the truth about God for a lie? They worshiped and served, created things rather than the creator 
who's forever to be praised. So let me stop for a moment, just because it's oftentimes we'll hear the word idolatry in worship and be like, that's ridiculous. I don't worship NFL football. But it's like, you sacrifice a lot for it. (laughs) You sacrifice a lot of time. You sacrifice a lot of money. You sacrifice a lot of relationship. You sacrifice, like, Getting down to it, just so you know, I am not saying NFL football is wrong. I love it. The Broncos are terrible this year, and I still love it, right? So it's not anything like that, but it's these moments of like, where am I really seeking solace and security? So what in this room is not created? Somebody just help me real quick. What is? Nothing. Okay? Nothing. Everything's created. And there are people that would go, well, this building was built by certain people and, and we are unconsciously, you know, trusting that it'll hold itself up in the end. But the builder of all things is God. The book of Hebrews says that everything's created. Now, so the reality is, how do we begin to understand what it is to worship and serve? Is worshiping and serving only singing songs and dancing? Is worship and serving only where you come on Sunday? Well, the Apostle Paul in the same book of Romans in chapter 12 would say, actually, it's everything you're doing with your body, where you're going to ultimately find those things like identity and purpose and security. That's where where you're putting your time and your attention and where you're expecting those things to deliver ultimately shows a worshiping and serving of created things rather than the creator. So I want to stop for a minute here. We have, we have a long way to go, but this is very important. Just from this message, from these three chapters, I want you to understand something. Folks, if God is real, and God really is the one who's displayed himself in the book of Exodus, that when he looks at these ways, Egypt was worshiping and serving created things, and the plagues come upon those to show that's not a God. 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 And then ultimately, in the Passover and in the Exodus, where he splits the Red Sea, here's the declaration. God is saying himself, I am God and there is no other. If this is the God who spoke the universe into existence and upholds everything he created, which includes you and me, by his powerful word, he's God and there is no other. If the book of Colossians is true, which is a New Testament book that says everything we see and we can't see was made by Jesus Christ and all things were created by Christ and for Christ. In that all things is you and I. So if this is true, this isn't just a moment where we seek solace on a Sunday, which it's fine to do that. If you're seeking solace, not in songs or a sermon, but in God. If this God is real, you're made by and for him. All of your misdirected efforts to try to find yourself, to try to save yourself, to try to make life meaningful or comfortable that's directed to a created thing rather than the creator. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. All of sin is idolatry and all of idolatry is sin. And it doesn't just stop by you recognizing, you know what, I'm really worshiping my job. 
I'm really worshiping my rest. I'm really worshiping my girlfriend. I'm really worshiping my social media identity. It doesn't stop just by the recognition because another one will come up if it's not rightfully replaced. Listen to me. Another idol, another created thing you will go after that you believe will give you the deepest level of meaning will come up unless it's rightfully replaced. This is what John Calvin speaks about when he speaks about the human heart. John Calvin says this, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual, that means ongoing factory of idols. We will consistently seek our comfort, convenience, safety, and security, identity and purpose, deepest levels of meaning in created things rather than the creator unless we experience relationally God unless we really replace inside of us a deep relational experience with God. So when these people were seeking to find their comfort in what they've always done of worshiping gods, and Aaron does this, the Lord sees it, even though Moses is up on the mountain with God, God sees everything, and God says this, the Lord says to Moses, go down because your people whom you've brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast into the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it. They've sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So now we begin to look at created things and we go, those are the things that delivered me. So even if God gives you a gift and in this room you've been an addict and you were helped by something like AA or Celebrate Recovery or you were helped by relationships and your statement can be, I couldn't have done it without those things, but you minimize or totally disregard it's God who's done it. Folks, that's idolatry. And I promise you, you will be let down. If you look at this church as the means of what's helped you change your life, our church will fail you because our church isn't God. That relationship, I could have never done it without you. You brought me out of that. No, they didn't. God did through good gifts of relationships or through good gifts of programs. But God did it. The minute you erect a created thing as a God, Chris Wright has a great line where he says, false gods never fail to fail. Anything in your life that if you say, if I lost it, I'd be destroyed, I'm pretty certain God's saying, if you have that right now, that's a great question to ask yourself. What right now, if it was taken away from you, do you feel like your life would be meaningless without if you fill that in with any created thing, listen to Chris Wright's words, false gods never fail to fail. Never fail. Because there's nothing you could put in that line that couldn't leave you or forsake you, even if it didn't choose to. I got a call Friday night that one of my best friends, who's like a cousin to me back in Denver, went on a run he has a sophomore in high school for a son, and he has a daughter that's in between my two boys. So she's in sixth grade. He goes out on a run. He's been in incredible shape, 
doesn't come back on time. Wife goes to look for him. He's dead on the trail. Right, 45 years old. At that moment, we have a great marriage. It's absolutely incredible. This is what I'm trusting. If I lost my husband, I don't know what I would possibly do. At that moment, Matt did not choose to die. But he left her. Didn't forsake her, but he left her. If you have anything in your life that you go, my life would be miserable without that. If it leaves me or forsakes me, and you're trusting it, my life would be ruined otherwise, it's an idol. It can fail you. But what is the only thing in the world for that matter that promises to never leave you or forsake you? Let me just say, it's not a thing, it's God. The God who spoke the world into existence, who upholds it by the word of his power. And when things are attributed as salvific, that made the difference, especially when he's the one who's done it, it gets attributed somewhere else. God gets a little bothered. Verse nine, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, so they're stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Now this makes people really wrestle, like really, really, really uncomfortable. Like God is saying, leave me alone, Moses, so that my anger may burn. Generally, no, against them. That I may destroy them. But then he says, then I'll make you into a great nation. That's called purification because God made a promise that he would take the nation of Israel and turn them into a great nation. That's the beginning of Genesis and it carries on throughout Exodus. God's purposes will stand, the Bible says. And I want you to know, regardless of who you are in here, no matter how knowledgeable you are, how many degrees you have, how much you've read, the brilliance of your insights, how much you understand, you can disagree with this statement, but I'm telling you it's true. Your purpose and ideas will not stand God's will. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. God's God, you're not. You will go away at some point, hopefully further into the future than sooner, but for some of us it'll be sooner rather than it will be later. God doesn't go away. God's infinite. He's the alpha and omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. God is God. And when we have a direct affront against God and we worship and serve created things, we disobey the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, it angers God for two fundamental reasons. Because he doesn't get the glory that's due his name. Now let me pause we don't have time, but let me say this. If you look at that and you go, he's an egotistical monster, you don't know and don't understand God. That has more to do with the declaration that God said of these people, they're a stiff-necked people. That's called arrogance and pride. God is due the glory that is his name. He shows himself over and over not to just be God, but to be good so he is angry when something is an affront to ultimate goodness. And his anger will burn and he will purify. His purpose will stand. He's not going to abolish the nation of Israel, but he is going to purify. And God purifies in two ways, passively and actively. He allows us to go our own way passively. He purifies and says, you want to live like that? I'll let you go your merry way and you'll see the destructive nature of sin. 
You'll see what a life is living outside of your created design, being created by and for God, living in a different way. I'll let you see the effects of that. But he also purifies actively. And I know this can make people uncomfortable, but in this very passage, he commissions a group of religious leaders to take out swords and destroy people who've been disobedient. But here's the thing, at that moment you're like, I don't like this, but God is so passionate about life and health, the same way a doctor would go out and kid, cut out a living cancer, God at many points uses things to cut out the cancer that's toxic. He's detoxifying an environment. So what's the ultimate detoxifier? How does this passage continue to go on? Well, one way it goes on is that God allows in the man he's called to lead the nation of Israel to experience the effects of his anger. Moses is pleading with God. God, don't destroy him. God, don't destroy us. God, don't destroy us. And God goes, okay. And then he sends Moses down the mountain. And then mountain, Moses sees the idolatry. And when Moses approached the camp, verse 19, he saw the calf and the dancing. His anger burned. And isn't this just like so many things? You could hear somebody that's so frustrated by something, so angry by something. And you're like, aren't you kind of overreacting? Like, don't act in your overreaction. But then when it comes upon you personally, when you personally experience it, you get angry. Moses is experiencing the horror of what's actually happening and now his anger's burning. But he's pleaded with God to be merciful. He's pleaded with God to go with him. But one thing Moses understands, and I believe some of this is cognitive, he understands it, and some of it is subconscious. But he begins to go on a quest in verse chapter 33 to pursue the presence of God. He goes on a quest, God, I need your presence. God gets to this point where he's like, Moses, listen, go lead the people, go for it, but I'm not going. I, they're a stiff-necked people, I'm not going with them. And he's like, are you kidding me, God? You must go. And then there's this moment where God's like, Moses, I'll go with you. And he's like, Moses is going, go with us. God, what do we have? How are we distinct? How do we have any power if you don't go with us? I need your presence. And then God goes, Moses, I'll go with you. And then Moses says, God, show me your glory. It's this amazing process of repentance, of ultimately understanding what is the thing that ultimately detoxifies us. If the most toxic thing about humanity in the people of God, in the church, and outside of the church is sin, which is idolatry, which is rebellion, how do we get detoxified from sin? The presence of God. Folks, I've said this before sitting up here. We talk about it in the back all the time. What we need is not songs and a sermon. We need God, the real God, to manifest himself in personal and very present ways. And Moses is on a quest for the presence of God. But there's a big problem in the Bible. The presence of God does not interact with sin. This is why you're gonna constantly, we're gonna constantly seek after worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator unless it's rightfully replaced. When God truly comes on the scene, he detoxifies, he cleanses, he washes, he restores, he renews, he redeems. That's what God does. The presence of God 
casts out fear, casts out the toxins of sin in the world. The presence of God in sin don't commingle. Now that's a problem if we're sinners, right? If the only answer is the presence of God and we need it, then sin can't be there. And you're like, well, then we're hopeless. On our own, we are. But God declares himself in chapter 34 with the description that's most often in the Bible used of God, and he says this. His presence passes in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. He's the Lord. He is God. There is no other. But this Lord is compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger, which means when his anger burned in chapter 32, it didn't come about like my anger in my home, knee jerk. It came about slow over time. He's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He's abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands in forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. If you're in here and you're going, man, I see my rebellion right now. I don't know what it is, but something's going on inside of me, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, and you're going, I see my sin. I see my rebellion. I see my wickedness. God forgives wickedness, rebellion. He forgives sin. You recognize that you're guilty because he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Guilt will be punished. The question is, in God's economy, who? Where does sin go? If you carry it yourself and think you can ultimately deal with it, you're guilty and you will come under the full anger of God and the punishment of sin, the consequences of itself, or the active purification and punishment of God, or you can see that God in the definition of his compassion, in the definition of his graciousness, in the reality of forgiving sin, sent his son, Jesus Christ, the one who spoke the world into existence. He sent his son into the world to take the sin of the world upon himself, to take the sin of all of those who would repent and believe, who acknowledge their wickedness, their rebellion, and their sin upon himself. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, with sin. He places it upon himself and the anger of God that burns against sin because he so loved the world is taken up in Jesus himself to liberate us who believe. Folks, that's what's about to be celebrated in baptism. This dying with Christ, being joined with Christ, that sin was paid for by him and being raised with him to new life. This is what we celebrate in communion. Right now, I'm going to ask the communion servers to come forward, and they're going to walk down the aisles. And for some of you, this is weird. You're going to see a tray with a piece of bread and a cup. And this bread, listen to me, this bread is the body of Christ, which was placed upon a cross, who was nailed to a tree, who was condemned to die. We eat the body because we're receiving that the condemnation of our sin would go upon a God who did not deserve to be condemned. And then this cup that we drink is the blood that he shed. The life is in the blood. 
for the forgiveness of sins. We sit at this moment to eat and drink in remembrance of him. So if you're in this room and you go, I just don't buy that, I don't believe it, this moment, not based upon our judgment of you, but based upon your own declaration, it's a moment of faith, so you should just pass those elements by. But if you're here and you go, I've never taken this, but I honestly need this and believe this, today can be the day of salvation and partake. For all of us who do believe this, that need this purification now, let us eat and drink in memory of him. And then in just a moment, as you're partaking of that, there's gonna be a whole bunch of people line up along this wall and celebrate this very thing, the belief in this very thing that we don't trust in ourselves. We don't trust in created things. We trust in the creator who's forever to be praised, who's the only one that can save us. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your grace and your compassion and your goodness. But God, we worship you for your righteousness purity and holiness. God, we thank you that those things come together perfectly in the cross and resurrection of Christ. God, we celebrate this now in these elements and we celebrate it in baptism. In Christ's name, amen.